it's hard for us to sit in tension. And that's true of writing, that's true of reading, that's true of relationships with people. It's much easier for us to sit in judgment. And so holding that back is an act of grace and an act of listening. And it brings with it new perspective and gifts, just like how with another human, when we hold back on immediate judgment, there's going to be more there than you think initially. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Grace Hammond is a writer and independent scholar of Middle English contemplative writing and poetry. She's also the host of the podcast, Old Books with Grace. Her first book is Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. In this episode, Dr. Hammond and I talk about the gift of surprise, the discipline of openness, and old books as a guard against chronological snobbery. Grace Hammond, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here and making time to talk about Jesus Through Medieval Eyes. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased to be here with you. Um, uh, what a neat book. Um, tell us, I'm just going to ask you, we'll start with what is this book about and why did you write it? Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, the title is uh, pretty um, revealing in a lot of ways. Yeah. And um, I guess we should also mention the subtitle, <laughs> Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. That's right. Yeah. So in this book, I take a look at the different metaphors and ways of talking and thinking about Jesus and who he is and what he's up to through uh, medieval poetry and art and contemplative writing. And I, um, it grew out of my own background. I have a I have a PhD in English specializing in Middle English poetry mm -hmm. yeah. and contemplative writing. And I um, just fell in love with so many of the images that and, and ideas that these medieval folks were using to talk and think about Jesus, some of which were familiar to me, but which I was enabled to see with fresh eyes because mm. of their words and their thoughts. And then some of which were very surprising and foreign yeah. to me. And um, I grew up in a, in a tradition that didn't place too much emphasis on history or mm. on uh, the, the roots of faith. Uh -huh. And so to, uh, to return to the medieval church and begin to take some of these ideas really seriously, mm -hmm. uh, just opened my my imagination in a lot of ways and and uh, brought me back to scripture in new ways. And mm. um, and so this book is exploring Jesus through medieval eyes, really. Yeah. So <laughs> each the the each chapter is sort of devoted to a different image of Jesus that that is that recurs through the medieval poetry or I guess that's almost always poetry, right? That, that you're talking about in this a lot of poetry and a lot of, uh, you know, mysticism, contemplative writing, yeah. like Julian of Norwich is one mm -hmm. of my favorite all-time mm -hmm. medieval writers, and she appears a lot in this book. Yeah, yeah. And also images from art, too. But yeah, so every chapter picks up sort of a different idea or metaphor or way of thinking about Christ. So things that are super familiar to us today, like 
the judge. We might not talk about it too mm -hmm. much, but we know that judgment and Jesus' mm -hmm. judge is a big theme in the Gospels and in Revelation. And then uh, the lover, mm. like in uh, both in the Song of Songs, but also in, in Christ's bridegroom language. Again, lots lots to pick up on there in uh -huh. his own illustrations and in Revelation. And then some that are are more unusual, like Christ is a knight. What does mm -hmm. that mean? What can we take from that? Is that something that's only grounded in in medieval understandings? Is there anything for us there? Mm. Or Christ as a mother, um, which you know a lot of people might think, oh, that sounds sort of new agey or or something <laughs> you know re more recently made up. But this is actually a, a very ancient image, also coming out of scriptural roots um, that monastic sure. writers and contemplative writers are picking up on. So those are some of the some of the yeah. different. Well, I mean, as, as you point out in, in the book, um, in different eras, we emphasize different different things that are there, have been there in the scripture all along. But as you said, the, the language of Jesus' mother, it's not like these these medieval people made that up. They were drawing on scripture. It's scripture that we tend not to pay all that much attention to. Right. I mean, and the funny thing is some of it is right in front of our face, uh, but we we just don't think about it. So the language of being born again. I mean, this is an image of giving birth and of motherhood, and <laughs> it's used all the time, and yet we've divorced it from its sort of metaphorical context. Yeah. And and yeah. when we think about it, it it's really interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, okay, it is. what can I think about that? What does uh -huh. it offer? What am I allowed to think about that? Yeah, what's there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you in in your introduction, you cite you know C.S. Lewis's observation that. You know, when, um, whenever we see Christian laity reading together, we tend to be reading um, books by people of our own time and place, and usually of our own theological or or ideological party. Um, and you know, again, thanks to to social media and and algorithms, this is truer now than it's ever been. Right, that every all our consumption turns into a, a choose your own adventure. Stories, yes. <laughs> yeah, very much. <laughs> and, and so um, you, and, and then by the way, I'm, I'm going to just read straight from uh, your your quoting C.S. Lewis here, where uh, where they are true, they will give us truths which we half knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error which we are already with which we are already dangerously ill. And elsewhere, Lewis talks about the idea that you know when we're already too permissive we act like um the big uh the big challenge is uh you know unperm unpermit whatever the opposite of permissiveness is and when we're um when we're you know overly what judgmental or whatever we we think the big the big issue is licentiousness mm -hmm. and so so we have these ways when, when we get to choose our own adventure we have these ways of sort of digging deeper and deeper into our own error but as you suggest, um, reading from other eras is a way to to get out of that doom spiral. That's right. Um, one of the gifts that the past gives us is that they didn't worry and obsess over the exact same things that we worry over and are obsessed with. Their binaries are not our binaries. Yeah. Their concerns are sometimes overlapping with our concerns, but in a weird, unexpected way. And so... Um, when you look at these debates, and I love how <laughs> Lewis describes it as these things that 
we see with retrospect as like, wow, they are agreeing on 90%. And this little sliver is what they're arguing about. But we see all this agreement. That's actually how we are too, but we aren't able to see that. And so when we look at the past, we start to go, oh, that's a new way of framing that question that actually breaks up some of the ways I've been wrestling and struggling. It, It cuts through it in a way that uh, I couldn't necessarily have gotten from just listening to somebody who is in the same boat as I am. Yeah. Um, and so that's a real specific... gift of reading the past. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Say, say that again. Oh, I just said, so that's been a real gift of reading works yeah. in the past and what Lewis is talking about. Yeah. Can you give an example of, of a, something where we think of ourselves as being divided on when actually we agree on more than we think? Um. And secondly, a way that that reading somebody from the past can can break an iceberg. So one thing that I I think about sometimes is um, is a we we uh, <laughs> we have very so you use the example of like moral permissiveness versus sort of being super judgmental, mm-hmm. but when you turn to say writings about Christ as a judge or mm-hmm. images of Christ as a judge from the Middle Ages, um, we begin to realize that too permissive and too judgmental are uh, binaries that mm-hmm. don't let us into the idea of, well, what does it actually mean to be judged by the person who died for us? Mm, I mean, yeah. that is sort of any kind of issues over permissiveness or or harshness get weirdly broken to pieces in in thinking about what uh, if judgment and mercy are not actually binaries, but two sides of the same coin. Mm, yeah. um, and so there are these images of Christ from the Middle Ages where in in one on on one side of him, there's an angel holding a sword. And on the other side of him, there's an angel holding a massive spray of, of lilies. Mm. And you go, this this is embodied in one and the same, and he's showing his wounds, showing, mm. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the same one who died on the cross, and that is who I am on Judgment Day as well. Yeah. So that sort of destroys some of the simple, uh, simplistic binaries between like, well, you got to come down hard on this, or oh, you yeah. got to go easy on this. Where you go, well, yeah. if they're all held together uh, as as they are in these images of judgment, that's really. You know, you have to wrestle with that. That asks you to wrestle with it in a different way than binaries can do. Yeah, that's good. Speaking of images of judgment, um, at one point you you mentioned that one reason to read medieval uh, poetry and look at medieval pictures is that they're weird and fun. They are. <laughs> and in your judgment chapter, you talk about a, a, a picture, an altarpiece, or um, some some painting of the judgment, and there are people. Um, some of whom are going down into hell and some of which are going up into heaven. Um, and they're all naked, except for their hats. Yes. <laughs> I love that, that idea of, of uh, people wearing nothing but their hats and, you know, uh, as naked as they're there, they're born, you know, the way you come in is the way you go out, except they're wearing their hats. And, um, of course, the the hats are there to signify what, uh, what, um, walk of life they were from, right? But some of them are wearing bishop miters and some are wearing plowman's hats. And that's not a question that it's, <laughs> it's, you may have more to say about that. 
No, but I, I love that image too, because I think it's a great example of how um, actually the weirdness of an image where we go, oh, that is just weird. That is weird that they are naked except for their hats. And you go, well, what is that weirdness letting me see yeah. um, that I, I wouldn't necessarily think about without the weirdness? And for me, mm-hmm. in that particular image, what was strangely comforting about an image of uh, of Hellmouth and of, and of also people going, uh, you know, to salvation uh is is the universality of of judgment over people of all different walks of life i think today uh and medieval people would have felt this too you feel so often just at the utter mercy of people in power mm. so say in politics you you're just so stuck by you know what you know whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other you're feeling under the yoke in some horribly uh in, in a horrible way right yeah. and and to go okay that's not the final word these hats mm-hmm. are telling us that yeah. the utmost earthly power the most powerful person you've ever seen in your life the pope whoever is under the same um return of Jesus in in the way I am too. Yeah. And and so it's funny how the weirdness actually opens a door into thinking seriously and and freely about some things that um you know if we're just in our normal day-to-day modernity we're used to yeah. you know we read things a certain way we see it but letting weirdness speak is a really fun practice of looking mm. at this these materials from the past. Yeah. Weirdness doesn't let you uh, dig in so deep on your own assumptions and your own categories that you've had all along. Um, yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm a, uh, I love Flannery O'Connor and, you know, she's another one who yes. lets weirdness um, sort of break through some assumptions that we have. It's a great comparison. Um, Cause it, a lot of times we, look at something, we read it, we don't let it speak again. We just take it right then and there. And what weirdness does is that it says, no, you have to look again, and you might have to look again, and you might have to look again. (laughs) And what's going to come out of that? What kinds of uh, dialogue between yourself and that image of the past are going to emerge? Yeah. Now, when you speak of this, the weirdness of these images, um, I know part of that is these are images from many centuries ago and people thought differently. Um, to what extent were some of these images weird to the people who were making them and, and seeing them contemporaneously? Well, they weren't weird to them necessarily in the same way that they were weird to us. Um, I think that was more reflective of certain ways that, so take the, the, the naked people with their hats on going down into hell or up into heaven. I mean, that kind of imagery was everywhere. So that would have been fairly commonplace to them. Um, And I think uh, being able to identify what would have been weird to them versus what's weird to us is a great task also of reading the things of the past and then discerning what what kinds of things that I'm focusing on that they wouldn't have focused on or vice versa. So weirdness is a really great indicator of that. And of course, some things were, you know, a little weirder to them uh, as well, but um, you know. So these, wait a minute now, these these manuscript pictures with bunnies with swords and (laughs) unicorns fighting bunnies and things, surely 
the people in the Middle Ages thought that was weird and funny, didn't they? Oh, definitely. Manuscript marginalia on the sides are some of the strangest, <laughs> most interesting things you'll see from the Middle Ages. And they were yeah. that was a that was a humorous aspect of of you know those marginalia were appearing alongside you know very serious things. That's yeah. not like a not like a humor manuscript in general. Right. Um, and so I think what what those kinds of little glimpses of things that they would have found weird and that we also find weird are invitations into how they saw the sort of absurdity of human life alongside yeah. the seriousness yeah. that there's not really a divide between the two. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a, a carnival scene. That's right. And it's reflective of the medieval mindset, which is that um, there are times for feasting and times for fasting. And if we yeah. focus too much on one or the other, we're going to end up in trouble. Yeah. Uh, if you can't laugh at yourself and, uh, and have fun and feast at times, um, that's going to be as much trouble in the end as if you can't take yourself seriously yeah. and fast and be penitent and all those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're together in the wholeness of human life. Yeah. I, one time I was teaching, when I was teaching at Vanderbilt, um, uh, we had a we we'd had some snow days. We'd missed class. Like I know you live in Colorado, y'all used to snow, but we act like you know we don't have any responsibilities when it snows here. <laughs> and um, but I saw a uh, a very uh, august uh, professor, you know, slip and fall down in the snow, and he wasn't hurt. I'm happy to report. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to the class about that's sort of the carnival spirit there. <laughs> it snowed. We all quit doing what we were supposed to do, and then this. Very self serious man uh, fell down in the snow, and it was a, it was a, a laugh for all of us, and it, it just felt like this is this is carnival right here uh, in the, you know when it snows around here. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I'd be sad to live in a place where people just go on with their lives when it snows. Yes, it it is a bummer sometimes, but we we still have snow days. It just has to be like really serious yeah. business. We had a cold a cold weather day only a couple weeks ago, so. Which is unusual, yeah. but you yeah. know that cold snap. It was very bad. Mm -hmm. so we enjoyed it. <laughs> that part of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You talk about the gift of surprise. I want to hear you say more about that. Um, and and you say to to in order to benefit from the gift of surprise, you have to cultivate the discipline of openness, or a word I like a lot, the habit of openness. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me about what what is the gift of surprise? What is the discipline of openness? Because Openness doesn't sound very disciplined to me. <laughs> it is a funny thing to think about. So um, I I taught for for some time, and and one of the funny things about teaching texts of the past is that people tend to come to them with either the tendency to really um, like valorize or reify them to sort of be like, well, that's you know, I'm just I can't question this at all. This just is as it is. Like this is its own object out in space. Yeah. I'm I'm just... sorry, you said valorize and reify. You can't use those words on the Habit Podcast. What, what valorize <laughs> and reify? To make it into an authority beyond your uh, ability to interact with it. Okay. So to look at it and go. Well, um, I, I feel too stupid to to approach or question this in any way. Uh -huh. Like, the, you know, if you're reading 
Paradise Lost. I know you love Milton or you're reading mm-hmm. the Canterbury Tales and you're like, I feel very like stupid and modern. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to question it. I'm just going to read it and be like, well, he says, you know, this, mm-hmm. this is this thing. Or on the other hand, we read it and we sit in judgment upon it. Yeah. So you read, um, you know, something like something that's, if, if you're Protestant, you read something that's talking about a saint and praying mm-hmm. to a saint a lot and you sit in judgment on it. You go, that's really wrong. And I, I'm not going to take anything this says seriously because mm-hmm. I just 100% disagree with this premise of, yeah. of praying to a saint or whatever it is. So those are kind of two different attitudes that you can, that you can unconsciously take on as you look at a, a piece written in the year 1400. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what both of those attitudes do is they're closed off. They don't mm-hmm. let the work speak to you and they don't let you speak back to the mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. They don't let you ask questions. Well, what do they mean there? Is that something that I believe or something that they believe? Is that, you know, the questions could go on. Sure. And so cultivating, um, letting yourself be surprised, letting yourself go, oh, that is surprising to me. And then becoming open to the text in front of you means being open to letting it change your mind about something. Mm -hmm. So it's postponing the spirit of judgment or the habit of judgment as a reader and postponing the habit of just, oh, I'm too stupid. I can't understand this. I'm just going to like let it be this thing that I just read and then I go away and I, I, I'm I not interacting with it because I, I, I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and the discipline of openness is cultivating this, hey, what, what, is this, what is this person from 700 years ago saying on their own terms? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to me? I am actually in conversation with them in this funny way that doesn't, necessarily in some ways look like sitting at a coffee shop with a friend Mm -hmm. but is actually more similar to that than (laughs) it first appears yeah what do you mean by that tell me more um you get to know them and that's what i mean by the discipline of openness yeah um the a, a phrase you use that i appreciate is uh reading suspiciously mm-hmm I mean, you've already alluded to this idea, right? I'm I'm a Protestant, therefore, you know, I, I, don't talk to me about saints. I've got nothing. To, I've got nothing to learn. Um, and the well, I'm I'm quoting you now. Um, I, your description of of reading suspiciously. Uh, I wanted these works to mirror back my understanding of truth, and I manipulated them so that they would. I was reading out of my own time and place with well-armed guards instructed not to let anything suspiciously heterodox pass the gates of my belief into my head and heart. Um, that's a pretty good assessment of what it means to read suspiciously. I mean, it, it, putting ourselves in authority over the thing we're reading before we ever let it speak to us. That's um, right. Which I think gets presented in Christian circles, perhaps, as you know, um, discernment and um, proper treatment of worldview or whatever the, the I'm not sure what verb you use with worldview, but, but you know, applying your worldview, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you said, there, 
I think you've already said this, I know you say it in the book, there's a time to be critical. Yes. But it's not when you're first you're pass your first pass through. Right. Um why is that hard? It's hard for us to sit in tension. It mm. just is. And that's true of writing, that's true of reading, that's true of relationships with people. Mm. It's much easier for us to sit in judgment and to immediately, well, I don't like that. That's wrong. Uh, I don't, you know, whatever. And letting something speak for itself a little bit before moving to that place of judgment is actually very hard for uh, for most of us, maybe mm-hmm. not for all of us, but I know it's hard for me. And it was especially yeah. hard for me when I first started reading these because I wanted them to just mirror myself back to me uh, and, and what I really liked and what I was, you know, what I thought was good and truthful. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this as like chronological snobbery mm-hmm. in a lot of ways where we just really want these things to, we, you're right, we sit in judgment really only because we're living 600 years later on from them. <laughs> yeah. There's no good reason for me, Grace Hammond, <laughs> to sit in judgment on, you know, Julian of Norwich or Jeffrey yeah. Chaucer, other than that I'm in this privileged position of being alive right now. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. holding that back is an act of grace and an act of listening. And it brings with it new perspective and gifts, just like how with another human, when we hold back on immediate judgment, there's going to be more there mm-hmm. than, than you think initially. That's yeah. how humans work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the kind of suspicious reading we're talking about is a form of arrogance. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, the assumption that I uh, um, that I'm in a position to go straight to judgment, um, you know, that's a that's a kind of pride, a kind of arrogance. And this is also a, a helpful reminder of the connection between arrogance and stupidity. <laughs> that's right. Right. I, I feel like, it, you know, arrogance makes me feel smart, makes me feel above the people that I'm that I'm, uh, you know, choosing not to learn from. And it also is a way of of circumscribing my world and you know with a relatively small circle um, yes and you know one way to make yourself feel in control is to really shrink your world down so small that it's things that you can control absolutely um and so it works in in terms of if if what i'm doing is mood management <laughs> making sure i feel good about <laughs> you know my position in the world um I might be able to shrink it down far enough that that I, uh, you know, can be the boss of this world. But man, I'm, I'm boss of a mighty small world. It's it's so true, and and I think because reading, because we're used to reading, you know, taking place just us in the book, and and we're the gatekeepers. It's more of a temptation than ever because it, it you know, it's a very it's you sitting in your chair at your desk or whatever, looking at this book. So it takes a real effort to not go there automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it really is shocking how um, people from every corner of the ideological, you know, every end of the ideological spectrum and all the points in between can be, and seem to be more, maybe more likely than ever to be guilty of these, of this kind of 
chronological snobbery and um, uh, going straight to uh, to judgment. Um, you've you're a writer, um, obviously. You've, that's why I'm talking to you because you wrote a book. Um, <laughs> yes. And as I was thinking about you, know, this idea of of uh, asking the critic to stay away long enough for me to finish reading, you know, finish reading this thing I'm reading, and then maybe critic, you can come back later and we'll mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. That sure sounds a lot like the way writing has to happen, mm-hmm. right? In the first draft, I've got to kick the the critic out, stop being so discerning, you know, and yes. just write a bad first draft, and then. You know, I, I don't, I'm not interested in silencing the inner critic because people who don't have an inner critic are crazy people. That's going to be a problem as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I like to think of befriending the inner critic and mm-hmm. having, and thinking of it as a friend who maybe talks a little too much and <laughs> I love you. I need you to, to, to come back, but I need you to go away first. Uh-huh. And, um, and so that process of reading that you're talking about, that, that, that act of childlikeness, Mm-hmm. That act of humility to say, I'm just going to receive this and I'll put on my critic hat later. Um, boy, that's it's such a helpful habit, both as a reader and as a writer. I absolutely agree. I think that there is something to that. Uh, well, befriending your inner critic is also a great, I think, a great and true thing. <laughs> um, but that process of giving space where there's a space as you, especially as you're initially drafting, I think that's really similar to this process of giving space as you read initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you dive deeper in, as you, as you wade deeper into the piece and whether that, whether you're reading it or writing it, then that critical side of you can emerge and be mm-hmm be more just, right? There's a justice and a and yeah. room there and you're not sort of trapped and flailing around. I, I mean, how many how many times have I rewritten a sentence like 50 times and been like you have to move on. You can't yeah. stay here. You have to come back later because you're trapped right now and you're not giving room for the rest of the of the thing. Yeah. Be, to grow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that language of justice with regard to the to the critic. Um, and it applies equally to reading other people's work and yes. and critiquing your own work. It's so does. good. Okay, let me ask you something else. I I remember what it was like to to do I mean, academic writing. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I've you know haven't done much in a long <laughs> time. But but um, and what I remember was this habit of scanning. Dozens of pages and zeroing in on that thing that said what I'm looking for in the first Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. so that I can now make my case about whatever I'm writing an essay about or a chapter or whatever. Um, So you've written this book about being open to, you know, cultivating the the discipline of openness as you read medieval texts. Um, Also in this, as you were reading your medieval texts, you can tell me to what extent were you um what's the word i'm looking for i mean doing what i just said scanning <laughs> aha there's somebody who says what i'm what i'm looking for them to say how did this is either confession time or time for you to give real you know, 
really helpful. If you didn't do that, how did you avoid doing that? Oh, I did that. I I mean, I don't think I did and I didn't. So like the big picture is that we're always going to do that to some extent. I think non-academics do that. I think that's how we're always looking. Where's the angle? Where's the, where's my hook? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, the, you know, I think that the temptation and, and what I've had the great benefit of, I think maybe this is the answer actually is rereading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan of rereading and of of letting things have the opportunity to speak again and again. Because mm-hmm. I kind of think no, that no matter what, the first read of something, you're gonna be you're gonna be hooked by what you're hooked by because it's yeah. what's speaking to you right then and there, yeah. right? Yeah. And rereading, so that's why in this book, Julian of Norwich uh, appears r- repeatedly because I have reread her now so many times that now she's speaking in all these different corners in ways that I couldn't have seen before and now yeah. writing that I'm seeing. And so um, I think rereading, I think p- um, paying closer attention. So uh, whether that's slowing down Mm-hmm. whether that's rereading, whether that's taking it in shorter chunks. I find that's actually been a hugely important practice for mm-hmm. me. I'm a very fast reader. Mm-hmm. I t- I want to consume it whole. <laughs> like I just want to <laughs> like, ah, uh, you know, without digesting. And I, so something that's important for me, in, especially in reading uh, old books is read, reading just a little bit at a time. Yeah, that's good. And that helps to prevent the sort of, incessant urge to well that there it is right there okay good i can quote that uh yeah yeah yeah. that's yeah what i needed yeah it seems your language of of justice is also appropriate here are you doing justice to this text that you're writing about that's right if someone if someone to go through things i've written and cherry pick the phrases that made my my stuff say what they wanted to say or wanted me to say that would feel like an injustice to me that's right. And I know I've done it to other writers. Um, yeah. Try not to, but <laughs> but now that I'm older, I'm trying not to. But when, <laughs> when you're trying to get your PhD, you're trying to write a dissertation, and mm-hmm. there's so many books in that library. Hey, when you said rereading, I thought, are you, are you crazy? Have you ever seen how many books there are in that <laughs> library? I can't reread things. I'm still trying to read the stuff that's there the first time. That's right. I mean, and rereading, this is what I love about rereading is that it's so countercultural. Like mm. it is, it is such an act of, <laughs> this sounds dramatic, but I think it's true. It's an act of defiance because mm. you're saying, I know there's a thousand things out there that I should be reading, that wow, I should so be good. consuming, devouring whole to get yeah. to the bottom of whatever this is. But rereading says, I, this person is important and their mm. words are important. And I, might not be able to get to everybody and everything, but I can sit and listen to to this yeah. one thing. <laughs> I can do justice to this one person. I can. I, I yeah. can't do justice to the medieval tradition, but I can do justice maybe. Right. And that's how writing this book felt is that uh, while I'm writing it, I'm like, part of the time, you know, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so absurd. It's a joke that I can even try to write about what medieval people were saying. I mean, this book <laughs> is the tiniest sliver, the tiniest sliver yeah. of the amount of things that they were 
crafting and writing and drawing and painting about Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and but you go, well, if I can pay attention to what is in front of me, at least I can do that. Yeah, that's so good. Um, okay, we're running out of time, but I, I want to, I love what you had to say about the Corpus Christi place. Um, can we just talk for, I don't know, just a couple of minutes about the Corpus Christi plays, explain what those are and why they were were important to you. Yeah, they, they actually really were very important to me. I, and um, So the Corpus Christi plays, Corpus Christi was a medieval feast, and it was the feast of uh, the body of Christ. You know, Corpus mm-hmm. Christi is Latin for the body of Christ. And so it was a feast celebrating the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Eucharist. And so every year... Um, there would be a, a Corpus Christi procession with the host and and you know all the townspeople following. And over time, this developed into this big sort of festival where um, there were plays uh, of the entire Bible, basically in in these towns. So York is a really famous one, and the one that I focus on most in the book. But plays from God creating the world all the way to Christ returning in judgment. So like, so, a, like a drama festival? Everybody had their little... Basically, yeah. yes. And so what made this so interesting and weird is that it wasn't professionals doing <laughs> this because um, it was so big. I mean, think of trying to put on a play of the Bible is kind of insane. <laughs> and so uh, different guilds people would ta- put on each sort of section of the play. So it'd be like, okay, your, your, your local butchers are... Uh, um, putting on one play and your local fishermen are putting on another play and the gold goldsmiths are doing this one. Mm-hmm. So it ends up that your neighbors, whether they're of, you know, higher status or a low, lower status than you are putting on uh, the, the drama of scripture right before your eyes. And so it really, uh, you know, you have your, your ordinary, you know, shepherd or uh, butcher, whoever is playing Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and then in another play, it's a different Jesus, and then in a, mm. another play, it's a different Jesus, and so it's sort of literalizing the feast of Corpus Christi, where before <laughs> your eyes, your neighbors are playing, are acting the body of Christ and the story of of creation and redemption. Yeah. And I love so that, that, I'm sorry. Oh no, you go, go for it. Uh, well, I, I love the, the idea that the, the guilds are doing the, a, a part of the story that somehow connects to the work they do. And so the people who make the pens are in charge of the part of the story where Jesus is having the, his, uh, his hands and feet nailed at the cross because they're, they're the, the people who specialize in that kind of thing, right? The, the piercing. Yes. Yeah. So the, so I mean, and that's another one where if we're talking about medieval things, weird and funny medieval things, uh, some of them aren't, aren't very funny, like the pinners, which is the nail, the nail makers are doing the parts of the play where Jesus is nailed to the cross. Um, The butchers are doing the, the mortification of Christ because they have access to a lot of blood. Um, But there are ones that feel more humorous, like the fishermen and the mariners doing Noah's flood. Um, <laughs> and so, but you begin to see how they've they've keyed into this idea that all of our different professions and different ways that we are in the world are all contributing to sort of this giant kaleidoscope yeah. of the body of Christ on earth, yeah. which is wild. Yeah, it's too big of a story for any one of us to tell. 
That's right. Um, That's right. It's not actually just a story that a preacher tells or that uh, a priest shows the host in the monstrance, uh, but that it's this big, full and kind of wild picture of yeah. life together. You know, uh, York in that era couldn't have been more than about, what, 15,000 people. So it's it's it takes a large portion of the population to put on that that show. And you would have known so many, even yeah. if you were of the lowest class or of the highest class, uh, you you would have recognized, yeah, that's the guy that I buy my meat from, or <laughs> that's the that's the person who's out, you know, with the flocks or yeah. fill in the blank, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just fascinating. <laughs> that's so good. I love it. Uh, I, I love that idea of, of their work being one of the ways that we play out the story or mm-hmm. that we um, uh, we are the body. So good. Yeah. All right, we're running out of time. We gotta we gotta wrap this thing up. So I typically end with the question: Who are the writers who make you want to write? So well, great. I've already in. yeah, I've already mentioned Julian of Norwich. I mean, yeah. uh, she's not only a, a profound contemplative writer, but she has beautiful prose, uh-huh. just stunning prose, and that makes me want to write when I read it. Um, uh, sorry, what was that? I said, makes you want to go try that. Yes. Uh, But most recently, I was trying to think, I was like, okay, Grace, come up with a non-medieval example. Mm -hmm. And so most recently, the book that I sat down that said, oh, I just want to go right now. This is so incredible and beautiful was uh, I just read Daniel Nairi's Everything Sad Mm -hmm. is Untrue. And when I put that down, I just was like, oh, like the the, like beauty and heartbreak of what writing can do is in this book. I mean, yeah. it blew my mind. So yeah, that would be the most recent the, one. He just got a Newbery Prize honor or whatever, you know, uh, for his second novel, the the Many Assassinations of Samir, the Seller of Dreams. So I don't know if you've read that one. If you haven't, I you know what? I just got it today at the library. Uh-huh, my hold finally came through. I was in line, and mm-hmm. I'm really well, looking a lot forward, forward to, to it. it. That's a great book. <laughs> Yeah. Daniel has appeared on the Habit Podcast before, so you need to go find that. I will. Grace Hammond, thank you so much for being here. This has been so fun. Um, I hope we can talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.